Hello, and welcome to June's IBMS pod. This month, we talked to microbiologist and charity co-founder Zonya Jeffrey, after which we're joined by a husband and wife biomedical science duo who've recently received a National BAME Health and Care Award. First up, as always, the news. Here's the latest news from the IBMS. Biomedical Science Day is almost here. The annual celebration of biomedical science will be held on Thursday, the 24th of June. This year, we're focusing on the integral work of the profession during COVID-19, and with lockdown easing still on track, we're hopeful that some face-to-face events can still take place. If you plan on running activities, consider applying for our activity fund, which provides up to 500 pounds for IBMS members to develop science-related activities and events. We're also encouraging members to write to their local politicians to inform them of the vital role biomedical science plays at the heart of healthcare. A template and step-by-step instructions are available online. As always, we'll be active on social media, so be sure to follow us there throughout the day. Congratulations to IBMS fellow, Dr. Sarah Pitt, on being named Biomedical Scientist of the Year at the 2021 Advancing Healthcare Awards. Sarah has kept the public updated with facts about COVID-19 as a voice of the profession on TV and radio throughout this incredibly busy year. The Science Council's CPD Awards are back for 2021. The awards are designed to celebrate outstanding professional development in science across all four registers. Nominations are now open and will close on the 4th of July. Congratulations to IBMS fellow Akinola Adewunmi and his wife Alubukola Adewunmi on winning a National BAME Health and Care Award for their incredible work encouraging blood donations in BAME communities. We're excited to have them joining us later in this episode, so stay tuned. You can find more details about this in all of our stories in the show notes. So this month, we're joined by a fantastic guest, Zonya Jeffrey. She's a senior biomedical scientist in microbiology in Manchester and was elected last year as a national member of the IBMS Council. Zonya's also worked overseas in Sierra Leone and Tanzania and has set up the charity Child Aid Tanzania, which aims to support mothers and babies living in communities affected by HIV and malaria. So welcome, Zonya. Thank you. If we can just start off then, you telling us about what you're doing right now and your current role as a senior microbiologist in Manchester? As a senior biomedical scientist, um, it's, a, it's a supervisory role, mm. as well as a um, bench work role. But my, um, one of my main tasks is working um, in the training area. I'm involved in organising the training for students, um, in-house trainees, um, the rotation and the training of staff in general in our laboratory, as well as running an area in, in the lab, of running a bench in the lab as well. So it's quite, it's quite varied. It's quite challenging, yet rewarding. And it's nice to see, especially when you get the, the, the trainees coming through the students, it's really nice to see their progression from the programs that you develop them when they start to when they leave. It's really, it's really nice to see that. Mm. Is there such a thing as a typical day, on you? It sounds like maybe there isn't. Yeah, it, there is. There is a typical day. When I'm on the bench, a typical day is you're coming in the morning, you get all your all your um, plates out because we still read plates, culture plates. Parts of the laboratory read the culture plates on a screen. So there's a system where it takes loads of photographs and you actually read them on the screen. Then you send um, your results down to like the other half of your team and they will do the supplementary tests 
to do the identification and uh, sensitivity testing. But on the, on the whole, we, we read plates still. So yeah, we read in the plates, it's quite manual. And we literally are, we are like detectives. We are deciding what's significant, what's not significant, what do we need to follow up? We're actually, we work hand in hand with our um, clinicians. So once we've decided what's, what's significant, we send them down to our counterparts and then the other side of the team will do that other side, basically setting up the identification test and doing the antibiotic sensitivity testing. But then we also get the other half because it's like a, like a two-day thing. So then the next day, you've got all those sensitivity results that you need to um, investigate and release to our consultants. And then anything that's notifiable, we need to be calling infection control and prevention. And sometimes it's like the health protection units and environmental health as well, if you've got outbreaks, you know, disease outbreaks. So yeah, it's, it's, it's typical, but varied. Kind of the hands-on process and then almost the kind of the, the theoretical diagnostic mm-hmm. process, which, which do you find people are strongest in? Is, is there one that's easier than the other? I wouldn't say one's easy another. I think um, it's sometimes you you really you really getting into the investigative, so you really are loving the hands on. But then at the end of it, you want to see what's happened, what's going on with this outbreak, and um, what's the health protection unit doing. Are they going to send more samples to us? Do we need to get more staff in to process these? So it's it's a mixture. Sometimes you're like, oh, loving this side. What's happening at the end of it? You know what I mean? And um, t- talk us through some of the most memorable outbreaks you've been involved in. Are there any that <laughs> spring to mind? It's always things. It's always like it's all the food poisoning ones. Like I don't know, like EM and an outbreak in a, in a school or a nursery or something or a nursing home. When you get that, you get that call. We're going to get a hundred samples in today, and it's four o'clock. You're going home at quarter to five, and it's like to stay behind. I mean, we, we get those that will step back, but we'll get those that will step forward and we, we're there plating out the cultures till seven o'clock and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's those kind of things where, and then, the, you know, the next day thinking, oh, is it going to be some positive ones? Is there not? And then you're kind of hoping they are for the effort that you've put in the night before, but <laughs> and that there's not because you don't yeah. want people to kill and not have to, you know, when people are ill, then. It's a case of the families, um, the parents have to stay off work. They can't, the kids can't go to school and all that kind of thing. So you're also, again, because you're liaising with the health protection teams and you're liaising with the environmental health department, you are understanding that what you're doing is great, but you don't want people to be ill and you don't want them to be off work and lose jobs and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's a nice, it's nice to have that liaison with the outside of the laboratory. It'd be It'd be the, those kind of outbreaks that are quite interesting. And do you, do you think it's unusual for you as a scientist to be liaising with as many people and as many bodies? I mean, people often have the, the kind of preconception about scientists that are there behind the closed lab door. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, when, I, when I was first training, I trained in a reference lab. So it was a case of I, I didn't really see anybody from outside. But as, as the years have progressed, it's actually quite interesting to think that, oh, I thought I'd just be in my white coat in a room, like you say, nobody sees you, this unknown entity type thing. But um, it is unusual. But I think more and more now, the um, scientists are working more with other teams. It's not just hospital teams, like I've said, it's becoming the norm that we are liaising more. We are working, we're, well, collaboration is the term, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. well, that's one thing that's happening. And it's 
happening more and more. It was unusual, but not so much anymore. I think it's becoming, atypical is becoming typical. With all the training and education work you do, is the kind of collaborative approach and, and those kind of softer skills, is that something you put uh, an emphasis on where there might not have been one before? Yes, absolutely. Um, we've had, the, we've had um, lots of talk about modernising scientific careers. So again, we're moving, we, we are really working well with our clinicians, with our infection control and prevention. And so at the point now where it used to be, oh, this is how you identify E. coli, go and learn about this. And now it's like, well, this is how you identify this, but how does that work in a patient? What's the significance of that? Students now and trainees are going on ward rounds with, with their clinicians to see the other side of it. So I think it's, it's important that our students and trainees know not just, the not just the laboratory side, but the clinical side, how to behave on a ward round, how to liaise, how to be, you know, behave in front of patients. It is one of those things that that's how we tend to be these days. It is, it is um, quite refreshing, if I'm honest with you, to have that. We're not, it's not them and us. It's everybody together now. So it's one thing that we do. We are pushing for our trainees and our, even our specialist scientists to be involved with the outside of the lab. So just before we move on, Zonia, from the work you do in the lab, I know antibiotic susceptibility testing is a major aspect of what you do. And obviously, antimicrobial resistance has become a major issue right now. Day to day, are you seeing any of these antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria? Over the over the years, yeah, we have seen that, and yeah. it not like it's more; it's different types of resistance that like you you would get. I don't know. You remember the old days of MRSA, and mm. it was like we are still concerned about MRSA, but um, with hand washing regimes and cleanliness and hygiene and stuff, those those have reduced, which is a good thing. It's a really good thing. But on the whole, we are seeing resistance in to antimicrobials, but it tends to be um, not necessarily, oh, it's becoming more and more resistant. They're just different, different um, groups of antibiotic resistance. But also we're getting more and more antibiotics um, manufactured and produced as well. So I'm hoping, I'm quite optimistic. I'm thinking that that's not necessarily going to be an issue because we are producing and manufacturing um, newer and more, I don't know, better more effective antibiotics. So I wanted to talk a little bit, Zonia, about the work you've done overseas. So can you start by telling us about the work you were doing in Tanzania and how it led to you setting up the charity Child Aid Tanzania? I worked with the voluntary service overseas, commonly known as VSO. I worked as a laboratory technologist, stroke biomedical scientist in Tanzania, which was absolutely amazing. I was training laboratory staff, um, updating laboratory staff, improving the, the techniques and the tests that we were running. And ultimately, they wanted uh, a microbiology setting up. It was a small multidisciplinary lab, a really nice lab. And they'd had some support in the past from other overseas aides, but the, the, what was lacking was the, the, the you know, consistent training. So I went to do that, and we, we, it was actually a very successful um, placement. I worked alongside the Swiss Tropical Institute on some surgical site infections. So that was that endorsed the fact that the laboratory needed a microbiology department, which we managed to get some funding to build this small little laboratory. I housed about three little people in there and it, it worked really well with basic culturing, 
and it was it was it was nice. That was where my tr- my love of training came in because I was actually teaching um, the staff the basics of microbiology, and then obviously over the years it's expanded and they're, they're still doing it. But yeah, it was a great placement. Um, it was a again, it was a challenging placement, and people, the, the staff that I work with, they learn a lot, and I've, I've obviously um, since then developed Child Aid Tanzania having wanted to give something back to that community where I was working. And I've been back several times um, with Childhood Tanzania, but I always go back to the laboratory and I try and help and support them, give them advice in any way I can. And even to the point where them, two of my old colleagues, one of them set up like a small local laboratory, a private laboratory um, for his like community. And I was mentoring him about his tests and, and training and joining the Joining external quality assurance schemes and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I'll live and breathe Child Aid Tanzania and, and Tanzania now. <laughs> and so, what are some of the main objectives of Child Aid Tanzania and what do you do on the ground in the community to help yeah. people? Well, from, from my experience with working out there to start with, the, the, the issue was malaria. Mm. Just, just thing, you would, you'd be testing hundreds of slides a day for malaria. And then with the added issue of HIV. I obviously didn't help as well. The, uh, it, was, it was just really upsetting to see that these two things would just knock down everything. And so my thought was, well, what, what can we do? Um, myself, my friend and my sister, what can we do to help the community that I lived there for nearly four years? That's a start. So the first thing was mosquito bed nets. Yeah, I, I can't invent the cure for malaria. So mosquito bed nets. So we provide mosquito bed nets for um, new mothers at the hospital because the children are most vulnerable. And um, for, we choose a, a, a village each year and we provide for those. And at the same time, then we thought, OK, then. So we provided mosquito bed nets. What else can we do? Well, education is, is, is the key and it's a start. So we, we've managed to support um, one primary school, one year of a primary school by fundraising for um, desks, school uniforms, and we actually now have a programme set up where we sponsor, we're currently sponsoring five primary school children. They're in the third year primary school. I think there's six years to, the, to, the, um, to their schooling. And we're sponsoring them. They get the uniforms, they get their mosquito bed nets, they get their supplies. So we're giving them the start that, that they really do deserve, <laughs> like everyone deserves, to get through primary school. And then we'll consider, this is our pilot, so we'll consider what happens after primary school. Hopefully we can continue to, um, to secondary school. Yeah, and that all came on the back of working in the laboratory and testing all those hundreds of malaria slides every day. Wow. <laughs> and um, going back to malaria there, how, um, I mean, exactly how widespread is it in Tanzania? It was very common. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, we've got a malaria positive. It was like, oh, another malaria positive. It was, yeah, very common. And it, it's sad, really, because all, all, all you would need is a mosquito bed net that would, that would help to start with because you just want to have the barrier. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty serious. And, it's, and we found it much more in the children under five years old. And that was really? that concern, yeah. yeah. And is there much foreign aid, aside from yourselves, coming in to help that side of things? Um, there is the um, Voluntary Service Overseas still do work with health and education out in Tanzania. There are some small independent organisations that I've, that I've known of that were out there at the time 
um, mainly to do with education. And um, there was an organi- a couple of Swiss organisations that were doing health and education projects. The, the issue is um, it's not a problem to get to Tanzania. It's getting further afield in the, the large hospitals in the towns and the cities on the coast. It's easy to get to. You, you can fly straight in. It's not, not so bad with the roads. But when you're getting more and more inland, that's where you find there's problems because you've got to travel with all your equipment. Or you look if there's an airstrip. There was an airstrip in Ifakara, but you couldn't land a jumbo jet there. It was a small, light aircraft. So people would get their items and all the equipment on the road or via train, which can take the whole day's journey. And then, and then um, it might have been beneficial for those guys to fly in with the small aircraft, set everything up, and then when everything arrived, they could, they could start work. So that's the issue I've always found is aid is difficult to get to inland. The more and more rural, the more difficult it is. So organisations like Voluntary Service Overseas rely on individuals in clusters to be able to make a difference in that way. So they might set up, you might have a teacher, um, a medic, a scientist, a small business advisor, all in the same, all in the same area, which they realise that clustering the volunteers with these expertise, you would get a better, better effect on the aid that you were trying to provide. Because the it's, you're, you're sharing the skills, as the, the term goes, you're sharing the skills to be able to change people's lives. And, and can, will there ever be a stage where we've sorted out malaria, where we've sorted out AIDS and HIV oh. in Africa? Is that a theoretically possible thing, at least, even not, if not practically? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, would be, it would be nice if that was the case. I really would like to think that at some point that would eventually happen. Um, but I, I don't know about the, the timescale for that because there's so much development. Obviously, now um, the, for HIV, it's, it's, e- it's easier access now for um, people to access the um, antiretrovirals, which is a great thing. The, a clinic was set up in the hospital where I was working with one of my um, British pharmacy colleagues. Um, chronic disease clinic where they actually had um, a whole cohort of HIV positive uh, local people and they were receiving their treatments and things were going really really well so I'm thinking that it, it might be a case like you say sort out help manage maybe manage is the better phrase I'd be thinking I think there'll be a point where it is manageable and the stigma hopefully will reduce further so people don't be, offend, don't be afraid to go to the clinic and go and get their medications that can prolong their lives. Because I've seen improvements over the years. It's not, as, it's not as scoffed at anymore. People aren't finger pointing as much as they used to. So I think um, if people can have access and get access, and I also know another organisation that solely provided access to go and get your medications. And I think then it could be managed it could be managed very well. That's HIV. Malaria, I think there is talk of some kind of um, some research and some, I don't know about the vaccination I heard. I'm not quite sure on the ins and outs of that. Um, but again, there's a lot of funding goes into these things. And I think it's a combination of organisations, governments and lo- local practices. And I think it could be managed at some point. But it all starts with malaria. It all starts with a bed net protection to start with physical protection you've not just worked overseas in tanzania tell us a bit about the world health organization cholera project in the sierra leone 
oh, that was, yeah, that was um, an opportunity that as a biomedical scientist didn't come up that often. So myself and two other colleagues on three consecutive months um, individually, we went out with um, WHO and Public Health England to set up, well, to manage um, uh, the cholera, let me get this right, manage a cholera project. Basically, the laboratory needed staff to be able to train and manage and ice and identify and isolate um, cholera because it was the season for cholera. And it's really, they, they struggled. The, the area was struggling. So fortunately, funding came and we were able to go. And it was a very, very interesting project because not only were we managing the laboratory work, we were managing the, I suppose, the logistics side of things, transport, um, um, electricity, generator, all that kind of stuff. And we had to literally take our reagents out with us. We had to everything packed up. We had to, not like the previous project where I was going in there and things were there already. This thing was like, right, what do we need to take? And it was an eye-opener because there was one thing I'm going, oh, we do this in the UK, this should work. So we set everything up, we get everything running, and then we realise it's missing one item. And it's oh, oh my goodness, okay then. Well, the next person can bring that out with them. But yeah, little things like that. And it, um, having done that, I, I would know now be much better prepared for finding out what is in the area and what you actually need to bring. But the, the colleagues that I worked with out there, they were, they were amazing. They were great. They were so, they were so well knowledge and so well versed. They were, just, it was, they were just really happy to have another like-minded colleague to work with us. And uh, again, we went out to the villages collecting the samples. It was really hands-on and it was only for one month at a time. So we were, we were, we were up at dawn, coming home at night, making sure everything was done because we knew we were to a deadline. So yeah, that was great. That was, that was a really, 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 really rewarding. Really, really was. That was good. Yeah. But did you actually learn anything from your experiences there, which you've taken forward now into the UK just to think on your feet and be prepared for anything that could happen you know I mean it, we would we'd turn up one day and everything be good to go everything was ready and then the power was off it's like oh okay then we've okay we've got a generator oh but we need to call this person to get this signed off to get the funds to get the petrol for the generator how long would that take I don't know it takes how long it takes so then it's like learning learning to be flexible so then it, you just wait and then we manage our time and it's like, right, well, we know we've got this till this time. Then the transport's coming at this time. So basically it was learning how to think on our feet and learning to be very, very flexible. So now when in the UK now, when silly little things happen, I don't know, someone burns toast and there's a fire alarm and you've missed two hours on your bench. I just look back and think, oh, this is absolutely nothing so it'd be those kind of aspects it's those kind of holistic things I suppose how how to manage and how to deal with those unpredictable situations and I expect that during the pandemic it's really been useful to have that extra absolutely. resilience oh absolutely yeah I mean myself um I was one with along with my other colleagues that they needed people to do the COVID testing night night shifts it wasn't something 
particularly in thinking about doing a night shift. But then when, you know, when the chips are down, you just got to do what you've got to do. And I went, I'll one of the first to jump on board the night shift team because things need to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how has how has your role changed and adapted because of the pandemic, Sonia? I, I imagine it's quite different from what was before. Um, one of the main things I've noticed is that we, again, it's we we working more with our other colleagues. We used to be very bacteriology, virology, biochemistry, immunology. But now I'm finding that myself. I've got to know my, bi- my um, virology colleagues so much better. I know their names now. I didn't know who most of those were before. So it's actually really nice that I'm actually building up um, stronger, stronger, um, stronger relationships with our, with our counterparts. We're only one floor apart and we share the same equipment. So it's actually nice that one thing's come out of it. We are working, we are working really, really well together, very tight. It's a very good unit now. Do you think that'll continue post-pandemic? <laughs> or will it be like, you, you know, with like British people wanting to go back to the pub and like as soon as the pandemic's over, it's like whip off the face mask, back in the pub, back to normal. Will we have the same thing with sections of the workforce being like, quick, get, I'll get back into my silo? Or do you think it'll continue as it is? Um. I'd, I'm, I'm hoping it'll continue. I don't. I don't think we would go back. I, I'm, I'm hoping we continue. I think I'd like to think the virology and, and um, bacteriology in Manchester. We our links are forged now. I don't. I don't. <laughs> don't think they're breakable. They're unbreakable. I've seen that you did some work with the BBC as a scientific exhibitor. Oh yeah, this was really good. I forgot about this. This was really smart. This was the, it was anniversary of World War One, and um, it, gosh, it was a good few years ago. And they needed some volunteers for people that had worked in some kind of scientific field. And it was for demonstrating what happened during World, World War I and how we've changed over the years in, in laboratory work. So we, we all went off to Southport. No, really it was. And they set up these old tents, like, you know, like in, in the war. Like, yeah. I imagine those type of tents are really amazing. And then we were all in there and everyone will stand. And so I was demonstrating the vaccinia, smallpox, um, um, how that works, how you get immunity and how the vaccine helps you get immunity. And, and what else I was doing? I think I was showing the, the plate sensitivities for antibiotics. And these basically it was people, local people or people who had even made the journey to real that time. And they were coming through and they were seeing all the different changes in laboratory science over the years and how it was in World War One, how they did things and to, to write to this day and what they what we were doing now. And it was great to see that the children and adults alike, they were so just so intrigued that they never knew these things existed and never knew really what, what our roles were. So it was really great to be a part of that group. It was really good. Yeah. Oh, oh lovely. And um, last year you were elected onto the IBMS Council as a national member. Why did you run and what do you hope to achieve as a council member? Well, I, I totally respect the, the Institute and I think that it's great to have this professional body that's going to support you, it's going to support you in your chosen profession. And for me, I've always thought I've done, I've done some courses with the Institute and I'm a, I'm a, I was a branch, um, branch member for a while. And for me, it was like, well, you know what? I'd like to be part of that, part of that group that's going to help, and it comes back to the training, help my current colleagues, but the next generation 
of trainees, next generation of scientists coming through. And if I can be part of something that, you know, be a voice for people, because at the end of the day, it's like, oh, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Actually, that's a valid point. So I thought, well, if I can be on that committee with that group of people that can help make things the way members want it, then why not? Why not? Why not indeed? Yeah. So I'm going to pass you on now to Rob for the quick fire round. Okay, Zonia. So we've got a handful of questions. And you can say the first thing that comes into your head. You can expand on it if you want. Uh, or you can just leave a very short answer hanging in the air if you'd like. It's up to you. I'm going to kick off with the first one. What is your favourite bacteria or parasite? Oh, my favourite is Campylobacter because it has lots of flagella and everything. I like it. It's cute, but it's it doesn't take any rubbish either. <laughs> nice. And what is the best part of your job? Seeing the trainees complete their registration and become fully-fledged scientists. I love that. And if you could change one thing about your job? Ooh, no night shifts for microbiology. Well, that will come into play in a question in just a second. Um, <laughs> lab coats, good or bad? Good. And I think I know the answer to this one. Night shifts, good or bad? Bad for microbiology, good for blood sciences. Ah, and why is that? Talk, talk me through that, Zonia. Yeah, because those are quick. They need the test turnaround fast. We cannot speed up bacteria growing. On that note, I'd like to say thank you very much, Zonia, for joining us. And thank you. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye. bye. Hi, I'm Ella, and welcome to June's Lab Life. Today we're joined by Akin and Olu Adewanmi, husband and wife biomedical scientists at Liverpool University Hospitals, who outside of the lab are leading a charity dedicated to supporting and educating those with sickle cell disease and encouraging blood donations within BAME communities. They recently were awarded the Health and Wellbeing Advocate Award from the National BAME Health and Care Awards for their incredible efforts. Hi, Akin and Olu. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ella. Hello, Ella. Nice meeting you. Thanks for this opportunity. Of course. So I guess to start, um, can you just describe the project and efforts that you both are doing um, with your charity, PathLab Support? We started PathLab Support in 2012. And the aim of the project is to raise uh, public awareness of sickle cell disease and blood donation within our communities here in the UK, and also to support individuals and families affected with sickle cell disease. So we provide support here in the UK, and we also support uh, children in Africa, precisely in Nigeria, who are affected with sickle cell disease. So we've been doing it for the past six, seven years now, since 2012. Wow, that's been going on for a while. Um, can you talk about maybe the, the journey of getting it started um, and you know, from where you started to, to what it is now? Um, actually, what really inspired us to start the project is the fact that myself and Olu, my wife, we are both super-set carriers. And uh, we have three children, and none of the children is affected with super-set disease. None of them is, is taught uh, super-set uh, XX, uh, HPXX. So uh, we just felt that we are three times lucky 
and uh, we decided to do something for others, especially families affected. So that was how, uh, what, that was what really inspired us to start um, Lab Support. In terms of um, your education around sickle cell disease, you know, what, what do you want people to know most um, about the disease and also about treatment and maintenance of the disease? Right. Um, we've been to so many communities trying to create a public awareness about sickle cell disease, know, knowing that um, the disease is um, a life-threatening one, and also giving them a lot of support to um, encourage them to go, come uh, forward to donate blood, and also supporting the families with, um, and because I'm also a, a counselor, I also support them with families and with people affected with uh, sickle cell disease, with um, mental, uh, a lot of mental support and how to cope with their pains, with the stigma, the thoughts and feelings around um, their body image and all. But um, we support also with their medication as well. So what are the biggest challenges around encouraging um, blood donations and doing this kind of advocacy work that you've faced? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot of means, a lot of barriers, a lot of challenges. Like I can mention the other time about when we started in 2012, it wasn't easy for those people to come forward to donate blood. It uh, wasn't easy also to uh, bring up the public awareness about social disease. And um, it's been a lot of um, hard work to actually get people to understand how, how terrible and, and life-threatening the disease is. So we talk more, a lot, of, a lot more about um, the myths and the barriers about around sickle disease and also about blood donation. So we collaborate with uh, community group leaders. We collaborate with faith-based organizations leaders. So this gives us an opportunity to reach out to many audiences, to many people. So each time they're having their programs or their events, they allow us to come in, to speak to them. And we also have our campaign uh, stand where people come to us, you know, to ask questions related to blood donation and blood transmission. There are also some um, barriers like religious barriers people don't really want to uh, because of whatever they believe in. There are also the belief of, um, most importantly, some people from Africa, they believe that they want they should give their blood to their relatives, really. But here, it's a different working. You need to do for volunteer blood donation work to just walk in and give blood to strangers they do not know. So changing that mindset has been um, difficult for us today. So also a lot of myths around um, <laughs> giving blood, but we are trying our best and it's an ongoing project. Yeah, so World Blood Donor Day is coming up on Monday, 14th of June. So I guess any advice for, for people who haven't donated blood, um, who should be getting involved? Um, yeah, just any, any general advice that you have? I would advise the audience listening to us to take a first step. If you have not been donating before, please take a first step to donate blood. It's quite fulfilling. It's a way of giving back to your community. It's a way of supporting the sick people. So if you are healthy, especially from my community, from BIM community, please 
or the word blood, uh, blood, uh, blood, word blood do not day, I will encourage you to let it be your first step of giving blood. So go to www.blood.co.uk and book your appointment. And uh, we appreciate as many people as possible that can do that to support this city. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any advice for people um, who are biomedical scientists like you who, who might want to start up similar types of organizations um, and advocacy groups around you know, either disease or blood donation in their communities? Right. I would advise uh, my colleagues biomedical uh, scientists to not limit our career skills to the before uh, walls of the laboratories alone. Let us think beyond the box and use our career skills to create a social action project that will benefit the communities and others. There are so many problems in our communities that we can use combination of our career skills our transferable skills and passion to solve. Just like what we did, we are all, we are able to extend our career skills, our transferable workplace skills, and our passion to solve this problem of shortage of blood donation within the community. So I would advise individuals looking to look within yourself, think outside the box, and uh, do something for that. It's quite rewarding. And what was it like to win? the National BAME Health and Care Award for all of your work on this project this year? It was so uh, humbling when uh, we happened to be the winner of the Health and Wellbeing Advocate of the Year 2021. So we felt so honored and humble. And they, uh, this award is dedicated to blood donors, especially within the BAME communities all over UK, not in Liverpool alone, where we based, but all over UK. And that uh, this award also means uh, it's going to inspire us to yeah, do more. To do we'll be more. thinking and planning uh, our next line of actions in the nearest future, how we can improve, become more creative and innovative in our approach to create uh, public awareness of sickle cells and uh, blood donations. So we are very honored and humbled to be the winner. So um, I would like to add that um, since we, are, we got the award, um, we've been able to support so many of our colleagues who want, who actually wanted to do something outside um, their, the four walls of workplace. workplace. And also we have been receiving a lot of calls and text messages from a young and inspiring biomedical scientists who actually want to, because they're so excited, it's just so exciting to see how a couple could be promoting biomedical science. So it was like, wow, some people don't even know that this course exists, you know, but now that uh, they will see a husband and wife working in the same place, promoting biomedical science, it's, it's, so, it's so, so exciting and inspiring. To end, do you have any plans for the future of the project? Yeah, we continue from where we stopped, but uh, like I said, we are still think we are trying to become more creative and innovative, you know. Yeah. But to be honest to you, this award has opened a lot of doors for us. So mm-hmm. definitely I know we'll be more busy than <laughs> we started, you know, because but we are trying to see how we can make use of maximize the opportunities that are coming on our way, you know. So definitely we are going to come up with some other better ideas of how to encourage people to keep blood in our communities. 
It's an ongoing project, never finishes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely ongoing. Yeah. So with that, I'd like to say thank you, Akin and Olu, for coming on the podcast. And you can find out more about PathLab's support and Akin and Olu's books in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.